offer you greetings from the Webster County area. Let me first say to you what a privilege it is to have the opportunity to speak to you here this morning. At Longview Point, the majority of you, I suspect, would not know it, but you are a church that I have admired both from afar and for more than a few times, I've had the opportunity to admire you up close. And I've had that opportunity once again today. I've been very well served and, and taken care of. And I'm very much appreciative of that. Most excited about what the Lord has done and continues to be pleased to do through this church. And it is truly remarkable. I am thankful for the work of the gospel in this area. And so it's uh, my privilege to be not only with you this morning, but to also have the opportunity to preach. Again, I'm very grateful to be here. I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 13 through 19. And when you find your way there in your copy of the Bible or on your app, I would invite you to stand in honor of reading God's Word. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. And I can give you some time to flip pages. Matthew writes in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the scriptures. Father, that you've not left us without your word to teach us how to live guide us. Father, I, I pray that would be so today. Father, I, I pray for myself personally, Father, that my words would be yours. Father, that my words would be truth. And Father, that you would do the speaking this morning. Pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, and you would be made much of. Father, I pray that we come away encouraged. Father, I pray that we come away encouraged, particularly that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, work in our hearts and we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. And you can be seated. This week, as I was considering our time together today, I wondered if your experiences as Christians has been similar to my experience as a Christian over the last few years. Now, I do recognize that my context is different than yours. I serve as a pastor of a church in Webster County, a rural area. And I can only speak from my perspective and from my experiences, but from those experiences and from that perspective, 
I have experienced seasons of great difficulty the last few years for the church, at least in my area. And I attribute this to a, a host of, of reasons. Now, I want to recognize here that I need to use some prudence in my words here. I'm not suggesting to you that we've been persecuted, certainly not in the ways the church has suffered persecution before. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying to you this morning is that we have been through some stuff. And quite frankly, you have been through some stuff. The church has been through some stuff. We have experienced two tumultuous political cycles. I have no anticipation that the third one is going to be any better. This one coming up. We have experienced a pandemic. Whatever your opinion of the pandemic is, and I'm, I'm sure there are many in this room, we went through it and we were impacted by it. The church has been impacted by these things. We've also seen what I believe to be the rapid decline of our culture in many ways. In fact, I would suggest to you in my 42 years, our culture has declined in an unprecedented way. And in an unprecedented rate. And again, I believe we've been impacted by these things. And in some measure, we could argue we cannot help but to be impacted by these things. And these are not just things outside of the church. Have any of you been on social media lately? If you have not, I suggest that you don't. If you'll allow me to use a word that's become popular in our culture, it has become toxic. And I'm not talking about secular social media. I'm talking about Christians on social media. We seem to have lost the ability to even be civil to one another online, much less loving, which is what the Bible calls us to, right? I've said to my own church many times over the past few years, I have not lost an ounce of love for Jesus but I have certainly been disappointed with his bride time and time again. The last few years have indeed been difficult for the church. Now, there's something else we need to consider in light of this. I suspect that most, if not all of you, knowing the testimonies that I've heard come out of Longview Point, that you long to see people transformed by the life-changing power of the gospel. Sure, all of us have, have wondered what it might be like if, if God were to be pleased to draw sinners to himself in a way that is unprecedented. We believe as Christians that the problem behind what we say is sick in our society is sin. And the only answer, the only cure for this lost and dying world is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. We believe this as Christians. We have staked our lives on this as Christians. And so it is. We long to see an awakening. We long to see it in our towns. We long to see it in our state. We long to see it spread to our country. And perhaps even should God be pleased even across the world. I have prayed for that hope and suspect that you have prayed for that as well. 
But then it is that I consider the last few years, this season of, of difficulty that we have experienced, a season that if we were to look around, we might just be tempted to feel as though we are losing ground as the people of God as opposed to gaining ground. And if this is true, if my premise is correct, then my question, and then perhaps your question as well, is how do we stay motivated where do we draw encouragement when the culture takes another nosedive, which may just be right around the corner? Who knows? How do we stay motivated when we may feel that our voices are becoming fainter and fainter and we are becoming increasingly marginalized? How will we as the church press on when we look around and feel as though we are losing more and more ground? What will continue to motivate us to do the work of evangelists like we are called to do? Well, I believe this morning that Jesus helps us with this outside of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me give you a, a brief picture of where we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel. As we study Jesus' earthly ministry, we see three main groups that Jesus routinely has some sort of interaction with and these are in no real particular order but the first group we see is the crowds there is a season in Jesus's ministry in which he is very popular people in large numbers come to hear Jesus speak or they come to be healed or they bring someone to him to be healed or or demons cast out we're in Matthew 16 this morning and in Matthew 14 and 15, if you were to look back, you will see that the crowds are being fed. So we can understand why Jesus is so popular, especially in a time when health care is poor, disease is rampant, and food is scarce. Jesus' ministry connects with some very serious issues, and so it is that the crowds come. Second group is the religious leaders. I told second service, if the Gospels are a Western, the religious leaders would be the ones wearing the black hats, and Jesus and the disciples would be the ones wearing the white hats. That's how you tell who the good guys and the bad guys are in, in Westerns. You have the scribes who are the experts in the law. You have the Pharisees who are the more patriotic, conservative branch of Judaism. You have the Sadducees, who are the more liberal, who are over the temple commerce. And there was a, a few other groups within Judaism. We just sort of lump them together as the religious leaders. Now, they don't always agree with each other theologically. But what they did agree on is that Jesus of Nazareth was a problem. Then there was the third group. The third group we see with Jesus perhaps most often, is the disciples. Twelve men that Jesus chose to invest his earthly life into. This included Judas Iscariot, who, of course, we know will ultimately betray him. Now, I would suggest to you this morning that each of these groups are, are partially responsible for Jesus' brief excursion into Caesarea Philippi. You see, everywhere Jesus has been, he has either ran into crowds or he's run into 
religious leaders. He, he goes to one side of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds are bringing him sick people or demon-possessed people. And then he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the religious leaders are there, wanting to know why his disciples aren't washing their hands correctly, or they're asking for some sort of sign from, from heaven. And so there's a point, and we see it in our text this morning, that Jesus goes north. He goes to a place that is away from the crowds and the religious leaders. Now, I don't believe, nor am I suggesting to you this morning, that he is running away from these other groups. But what we're going to see in our text as it unfolds is that Jesus is taking this time to have a very important conversation with that third group that I mentioned, his disciples, which is where we'll pick up in our passage. Look at verse 13 in your Bible once again. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, before we get into the question, I believe that there is some measure of importance in understanding where this question is asked. We, we see in the text, it is a place called Caesarea Philippi. It is in the northernmost point of Palestine, close to the Old Testament town of Dan. You may have read in your Old Testament the phrase something along the lines of from Dan to Beersheba, right? So Dan would be the northernmost point of Palestine and Beersheba would be the southernmost point. And we recognize that it would be a place of solitude if you'll allow it. It was a place where Jesus would be out of range a bit from the crowds of the religious leaders, those who were vying for Jesus's attention. But there's something else here, something else we need to recognize about Caesarea Philippi, and that's its history. Caesarea Philippi is a place of idolatry. It had previously been named Peneus, after the Greek god Pan or Pan. If you were to Google Pan, you would find a being with horns that had the flanks and legs of a goat. You've read any C.S. Lewis and are familiar with the line, the witch and the wardrobe, you might imagine Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, Lewis's writings. Well, there was a cave in Caesarea Philippi that was supposedly where Pon was born. And so they had erected a, a shrine around that cave to Pon, the god of, of nature. In addition to Pon worship, there had also been the worship of, of Baal, remnants of the worship of Baal. You may be familiar with Baal also from your study of the Old Testament. Baal was the god of fertility that we often see mentioned in the scriptures. Even more recently than those, Herod the Great had built a marble structure in honor of Caesar Augustus. You may know that the Romans deified their leaders. And so it was that Augustus was considered a, a god. And so Herod builds a structure in order to honor him. And what we recognize with these things is that this is a place, place steeped in idolatry. Now, to be fair to the scriptures, scriptures indicate that, that they were on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi. So I cannot say how much of these things are in view, but I have no doubts that the idolatry represented by Caesarea Philippi certainly would not have been lost on Jesus nor his disciples. Now, it's within this backdrop, within this context, that Jesus asks 
this very important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? We almost deal with this question. Now, Jesus knows the answer, obviously. As we see, he's drawing something out of his disciples. See this in verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. Now, what we recognize here is what Jesus has asked for is the world's answer. He has preached, taught. He has done things that are miraculous. And people are recognizing Jesus. Again, he's, he's popular. And there's a, a stir in Palestine, perhaps over this man, Jesus. And so his question is quite simple. What's the word on the street? Now that I've done these things, now that I've taught with authority, what are people saying about me? Now you'll notice that the answer is certainly the, the world's answer. He does give what the word on the street about Jesus is. But you'll notice, notice that it, there's something distinct about the answer. One, it's very Jewish and it's very complimentary. I say it's very Jewish because all these men had a measure of notoriety among their Jewish brethren. And that would make sense to us in light of the context of where Jesus had been ministering. But it's also very complimentary. If you think about it, John the Baptist had, had certainly made waves in Palestine. Many came out to his baptism. Even some of the religious leaders we recognize came out to his baptism. This baptism of Repentance and preparation. We know from Matthew 14 that, that Herod Antipas actually believed that, that Jesus perhaps was the reincarnated John the Baptist. Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 11 says that among those born of women there had arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is a complimentary answer. And then there's Elijah. Elijah was supposed to be the forerunner for the Messiah. Last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah. Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This, this is still a, a hang-up for the Jewish people. If you were to go to a, a Passover celebration in a Jewish home, you may recognize there is a seat at the table. An empty seat, mind you, for Elijah. They're still waiting for Elijah to show up. And then there was Jeremiah. There are some writings outside of the canon that record that many believe that Jeremiah had stolen the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense. And that he had hid them at one point at Mount Nebo. And that he would come and he would retrieve these things before the Messiah had come. And then there's sort of that blanket statement, right? Or just one of the prophets just, just sort of covers it all, doesn't it? Complimentary answers, very Jewish answers. Just the wrong answer. Now, verse 15, Jesus then, then changes things a bit. He turns the question on the disciples. But he said to them, But who do you say? That I am. Now let me set the stage for you. 
The context here, I believe, is important. Don't miss the backdrop of the question. There is Caesarea Philippi that, at least perhaps, in view, is all that man can conceive for himself to worship. A place of idolatry. And then we imagine the disciples as they're mulling the question over in their minds that the answers of the crowds may be ringing in their ears. Some say this man is John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's Jeremiah or a prophet. And then we also need to recognize that these are Jewish men with their own Jewish perspective on the Messiah. And I have no reason to believe that it was any different than the rest of the Jews. They believed that the Messiah would come with power. That he would come as a king with, with military force. That he would come and he would break the yoke of Roman oppression. And all that the mind imagines when we think of a king. Then there's Jesus. Standing there. Penniless. Homeless, born into obscurity, born quite frankly into scandal. A carpenter's son from Nazareth, no less. And he asked this question, and this is the question. And it's just them. No religious leaders, no crowds, no, no miracles, just them and Jesus. And he says, who do you say that I am? They have seen Jesus' power. They have seen him heal. They've seen his compassion interacting with the people. They've heard him speak with authority. And now it all comes down to this. Here is the question. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied in verse 16. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Peter gets it right. It's a high point in, in Peter's life so far because he's going to stick his foot in his mouth, right? He has a tendency to stick his foot in his mouth. Not this time. Peter, speaking for the twelve, it would seem, gets it right. You are not John the Baptist. You are not a prophet. All of these are complimentary answers, but that's the wrong answer. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The one the Old Testament prophets wrote about the one we've been looking and longing for. O come, O come, Emmanuel. You are God incarnate. God in flesh. This is the right answer. It's a good answer. We recognize that it is a good answer. And a right answer in Jesus' response. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, Peter, this is not mental ascent. You didn't come up with this in your own cleverness or intellect. This is revelation. God has revealed this to you, Peter. And what we begin to recognize is that, that what is happening in Palestine is starting to, at least in some measure, become clear for these disciples. This Jesus is not another rabbi. He's certainly not an insurrectionist. He's not some spiritual guru. This man is God in human flesh. It's the right answer. 
It's the answer that we all must arrive at. Now, the next few things that Jesus says has been highly contested in church history. We recognize that in particular between Catholics and Protestants. And we won't try to solve all those theological problems today. But I believe there are a couple of important things for our understanding of the nature of the church. Look at verse 18 and 19 in your Bible. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Three big ideas. Three big ideas that I'd have us understand this morning. The first is that Christ building his church is a certainty. There is nothing that will stop Christ building his church. Notice that there is no contingency in his language. He's emphatic here. I will build my church. There's no if this thing continues to, to play out as it's played out so far. If I remain popular, if you guys continue to, to follow me, if things continue to work out the way I think they're going to work out, I'm going to build my church. No, there is no contingency. We recognize that Christ building his church is a certainty. What I love about this is that we don't have to go very far to begin to see this coming to fruition as it continues even to this day. Remember that, that Peter at this point is speaking for the twelve and he is the first to make this great declaration about Christ. And then as you move your way through the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts. I just finished that up in, in my church. And when you come to Acts, you'll notice that Peter will preach at Pentecost and people will be saved. In fact, the first few chapters of Acts, Peter is front and center. In fact, I, I believe he's considered the first among equals when it comes to the disciples. We might argue that Jesus was, excuse me, Peter was Jesus' closest earthly associate. Yet, you know what happened to Peter? He died. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down in Rome. Now, I'll be the first to admit that, that, that Peter had a special place in redemptive history. I, I don't believe he was the first pope, but I'm certainly comfortable with recognizing the important role Peter had in the early church. But Peter died, and you know what happened? Christ kept building his church. Brings me to my second big idea. Death does not hinder Christ building his church. Notice that Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Your translation, depending on what you're reading, may say Hades. Hades meaning the abode of the dead. And I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that death has no victory over the church. And it's true. We see this materialize. James and John, sons of thunder. I always love that. Along with Peter, we're considered to be by many Jesus's inner circle. We're certainly considered the pillars of the early church. You know what happens in Acts? James is killed by the sword. And Christ continues to build his church. We, we just go through the list. Matthew, Thomas, Thaddeus. They're all killed. We, we believe they were all martyred, except for John. And there's some 
stories out there that they tried to kill John, and it, it didn't pan out for him, and so he was exiled eventually to Patmos, where he received the revelation. But even John, do you know what happens to John in due time? John dies. These were men used by God. Ephesians 2.20 talks of the apostles and the prophets as foundation of the early church. Jesus as the chief cornerstone. These men have a special place and uniqueness in redemptive history. Yet they all die. Jesus keeps right on building his church. Nothing can stop Christ from building his church. It's unstoppable. According to Open Doors USA, the top most, five top most dangerous countries in the world for Christians are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. You can do a little research on your own. It doesn't matter. Christ is building his church. J.C. Ryle says it like this. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all. It sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. Jesus will build his church. And he's not talking about brick and mortar. He's not talking about an organization that he is building. Jesus is talking about an organism. Jesus is gathering a people for his own possession. The third and final big idea from the text, and I'll borrow from the language of the Christ-centered exposition on the Gospel of Matthew. The last thing that Jesus is saying to Peter and the other disciples is, I give you authority. Verse 19, again, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I'll commend to your study all of the nuances of that passage. But I would have you see a couple of things. Notice that Jesus uses the example of a key. We can understand this. A key is something used to gain access to something that would not be accessible without said key, right? Well, I believe this is the gospel. I believe we see it with Peter at Pentecost, the one that made this first great declaration. He preaches Christ at Pentecost, and the door to the kingdom is open. We also have this gospel. We are able to open the door to the kingdom for those who could in no way access the kingdom apart from the transforming grace of the gospel. Now, let me talk about this authority a little bit. This authority that is given to Peter, and I believe extends to us, is tethered entirely to the Scriptures. To say with assurance that if one would repent and believe this good news of the gospel, then one can be saved. And by contrast, if one does not repent and believe the gospel, 
That person will die in their sin and be eternally separated from God. And when we make those types of statements, we do so based solely on the authority of Scripture. And we can be assured then that we are in agreement with what has been determined in heaven. Here is the big idea this morning, Longview Point. Christ is building his church. Isn't that good? Christ is building his church, and it happens in a host of ways. Through faithful Sunday school teachers, maybe that's you. Through vacation Bible school. Through mission endeavors and opportunities. And I love this one. Through Christians who simply take the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 to go make disciples seriously, as if he really meant what he said. And they go into the madness, into the darkness. They go daily, armed with only this good news of the gospel, and they share this good news with coworkers, neighbors, friends, family, Christ builds his church. It is unstoppable. Now, what does the future hold for us as the people of God? Will we see another great awakening? I cannot say that. I don't know. I pray that it will. But I, what I can tell you with all assurance is that Christ will build his church. And you know what else? We've been invited into his mission. That's our motivation. That's our motivation. That is the thing that keeps us going. While we keep our hand to the plow, not looking back, we press on. Because we've been invited in. It's our mission. God's mission is, is our mission. That's why we continue to pray. Beg on behalf of that loved one that continues to reject the gospel. While we continue to go with this good news to everyone that we encounter. We have the gospel. We have the scriptures. And until we hear, well done, mission accomplished, we press on. And we do so despite difficulty. We do so despite frustration. We do so despite oppression from this lost and dying world. We press on. And his glory is our reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask again that you do now what my feeble words certainly cannot. I pray that you would work in the hearts and lives of people. And Father, I, I pray that affections for you would be warmed. Father, I, I pray that fresh zeal for evangelism would stir. Father, I pray that we would feel some measure of comfort in a world that is dark, in a world that is broken, that is lost, dying. That we'd find some encouragement in the reality that through Christ, there's hope, there's light. Father, I, I pray that we would be a people set on being a part of your mission. 
build a church, to build an organism, to build a people for your own possession, to display your supreme glory by redeeming a people that are bound in rebellion against you. May we be on mission to build the church. Pray that it will be so. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.